We have to learn to be able to see beyond our problems. In this case, we have to see beyond our pain and beyond our suffering in order to see the, the answer to the question, why does God allow this to happen? And so pain and suffering is normal. It's, the scriptures say, uh, Job said, uh, in every, in every uh, life, a little rain must fall. I think it was Job that said that. Uh, we know that on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, we're all going to have some bad days. Bad stuff is going to happen to us. We just know it, we accept it, we expect it. And so when that happens, when we have those bad days, we have to be able to look beyond the incident or the traumatic experiences that we go through. Look beyond that if you really are concerned about seeing why God allows those things to happen in your life. That's not easy. Now, the reason I say this is offensive to some people, because if you're in the middle of a struggle right now that you're trying to sort through and make sense of, you're not going to want to hear the stuff I have to say today. And, and I understand that because when you're in the midst of a crisis, that crisis consumes you and that's all you can think about. It's all around you. It's right in front of your eyes and you're not going to have the ability to see beyond it. But I'm telling you, the day is coming when you will be able to, and you will be able to see beyond it. But I also want to share with you now that if you never find the ability to look beyond it, that crisis or that incident has the ability to completely shut down the development of your faith. It has the ability to completely block any breakthrough that God will ever have in your life if you cannot learn how to look beyond that crisis. And that's why whenever there's pain and suffering, I guarantee you there's going to be a devil there also. He's going to be whispering in your ear, lying to you about how you perceive that crisis or those events and trying to get you to hate God and to blame God for everything that you're going through. Just understand that, that when you go through it, there is going to be a devil lying to you around every corner. And he's very convincing. And he will bring people into your life that you will classify as godly people and they will give you ungodly counsel because the devil will use even people like that to, to steer you away from who God is and what he wants for your life. And so in looking at this, this topic, I want to suggest two parallel concepts that are always at work intertwining with each other. The first concept is this. We live in a fallen world that is full of sin. Because we live in a fallen world that is full of sin, we can expect a lot of bad stuff to happen in this world. God gave us free will. If he were to have eliminated all negativity, all evil, all brokenness and pain and suffering, if he would have prevented that in his creation, then the only option you would have is him. And that is not free will. He wants you to freely choose to love him. So he gives you an option. You can either love, live life his way or you can live it your way. Your way will lead to destruction, but yet a loving God will still give you that option. He wants you to choose him ultimately. And so that's also part of the answer, by the way. Why does God allow for pain and suffering? So that at the end of the day, you will choose him. Makes sense to me anyway. The second parallel concept is this, is that we worship a sovereign God who has a plan of redemption 
for this fallen world. So because he's sovereign, that means he's all-knowing. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan. He has an agenda. He's going to carry out that plan and agenda, and we cannot thwart his plans. And so we have to learn to trust him even in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our brokenness. And we just need to give him credit that he knows what he's doing. But even that can be difficult. So the question is then, why does God allow for pain and suffering? We must look beyond the problem. We must look at God. He must be his, our focus. And we also have to remember a concept that I've been saying for many years um, when I first learned this. It, it became the epiphany for my ministry anyway. And that answer is this. Church is not about me. Church has, I can't say it's never been about me. Because once I was lost, and I was the objective that the church was looking for. But the thing is, is that when we become church members, we cease to be the focus of the church. When we join, we become a solution to the world's problem. And so the church's job is to find those who are lost and those who are broken and then bring them to the Lord. That's our job. And so when we bring people uh, first, that's our focus. But when they come to the Lord and the Lord cleans them up, then they're not the focus anymore. Those people now are a part of the solution. And so we train them to go out and to look for others who are lost, wounded, and broken and bring those in. And so it's, it's a very narrow thing for any of us to think that all of this is about me. But when you're going through a crisis situation, you've lost a loved one, you've lost a child, you've lost a job, your, your home burned down in a fire. When that happens, you do become the focus. You are the, the only person in your universe at that time. That's where the devil wants to keep you. He wants to keep you there looking inwardly all the time so that you start thinking things like, woe is me, woe is me. Why doesn't anybody love me? Why doesn't anybody care for me? Nobody provides for me. Nobody protects me. Even God has turned his back on me because nobody helps me. That's when the devil does his best work. But we have to train ourselves before we get into the crisis Preventive maintenance, perhaps, but we have to prepare ourselves and train ourselves mentally so that when we get in the crisis, we already have a game plan. We already know how to get through it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He'll get you through this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And shut out the lies because you know they're going to come. And you know anything that you hear in your head or in your heart that contradicts who you know God to be, you have to learn to shut it out. Because it's just a bunch of hogwash. I have to remember my environment here. And so, we always have to keep this one basic undercurrent. The reason that there is pain and suffering in the world is so that God can show redemption. Redemption is God's goal. So I want us to look at a story uh, that goes... Uh-huh. So we're going to look at a story. It's in Genesis 37. <laughs> and it's going to go all the way through Genesis 50. So we're going to look at 13 chapters today. And so I've called out for lunch. No, I'm kidding. We're going to do an abbreviated version of this. But you, you're probably a little bit familiar with the story of Joseph. If not, you can read it later and, and see if I'm telling the truth. 
But we know that Joseph was the, uh, the 11th of 12 kids. Is that right? 11 of 12. Uh, he was like at the bottom. Uh, Joseph had dreams that his family, his parents would one day bow down to him. And he shared these dreams to his brothers. We know that he was the favorite child of his father because his father gave him the coat of many colors and treated him like royalty. He protected him. He said, oh, no, honey, you don't have to go out and work in the fields. Let your brothers do that today. Naturally, his brothers despised him because he was the favorite. Not only did they despise him, but they eventually planned his death. But one of the brothers decided to intercede for him. And he says, no, we cannot kill him. We cannot do this to him. And so while he was gone, the other brother said, okay, older brother's out of the way. Let's do this. Let's just put him in the pit. We will cover his pretty little coat in blood and we'll sell it to dad that, that he had been killed by animals. And then we will sell him to a band of gypsies. We'll sell him into slavery. And then whatever happens to him happens. We won't actually kill him, but in theory, we will kill him. So that dad never hears his name again. And so they did just that. They put him in the pit. But here's the thing that we need to remember about the story. When he had his dreams and his visions of the blessing that were going to come and all the family bowing down to him, he never, never once had a glimpse or a hint that he would be thrown in a pit and sold to slavery. The pit was not part of his dream but it was part of his reality. In the pit, it was a dry cistern where he was in this, he couldn't get out. They would throw him grub to eat uh, if they felt like it. The sun would beat down on him, no water. And then finally, they would sell him to a band of gypsies that would treat him as a slave with no rights. They would abuse him. They would mistreat him. They would work him to death. And this became his, his dream. The suffering and the pain that he endured was not part of the dream. It was not part of the vision, but it was part of his reality. Which is supposed to illustrate to us that if you have a dream about what God's going to do in your life and where he's going to lead you, but yet at some point you end up in a pit, in a place of suffering, you have to remember that that place of suffering was not the end result. That is not where God intended you to be but he intended you to go through it so that the dream could become a reality. At that point is when we have to trust in his sovereignty, that he knows what he's doing. From there, he went into slavery, and he was there for quite a while. When the, when the, the band of gypsies got down to Egypt, they sold him unto Potiphar, and so he became part of the Egyptian council. But the, the scriptures indicate that God's hands were upon him. It was upon him, and everything he did turned to gold, literally and figuratively both. And so he was greatly blessed in Egypt. And so he was, ra- he was rising up the ladder of authority. He was, he was climbing in rank. And at some point, Potiphar's wife, who again was being manipulated by the devil, decided to make some advances at him, which he refuted, but it didn't matter. He was guilty by association. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he ended up going to the prison for two years at least. Again, I say that the, the, the prison, much like the pit, was not part of his dream. 
It was not part of the vision God gave him, but it was a necessary reality. And and this prison system in Egypt was not like ours today. He didn't get a TV in his room. He didn't get warm blankets and a pillow. He didn't get more rights than the impoverished in this world. He got better meals than, you know, here you would get better meals than people who don't have money, right? Um, So we treat them like royalty, but there... He had to fight for his his food. You know, he had to fight for everything. I'll tell you this. A couple of years ago, I visited a prison in Haiti. And their jail cell was about 12 by 12. And the only thing in the jail cell was one little hole in the corner of the building that was that was drilled down into the concrete. That was their toilet. Thirteen men were in that jail cell. They All they had on was their skivvies. And that was all the luxury they had was that little hole in the floor to go in to put their um, their waste in. No air conditioning. The heat comes right through there. If you've ever been to Haiti, it's hotter than Hades, man. It's crazy. And you get some sweaty guys down there that stink. And, oh, my gosh, it's really lovely. Um, a vacation palace, right? But anyway, so that's the kind of, we just need to understand the, the prison was nothing special. It was nothing good. It was nothing pleasing. And he spent over two years there. And we have to ask the question, if God gave him this dream of, of him being in power and authority and people bowing down to him, how is it possible that he spent the time in the pit and now two, over two years in prison where he suffered and suffered and suffered? It was part of God's plan. It was part of the plan. But while he was in prison, he got to interpret a couple dreams of the baker and the uh, the butcher, I think it was, wasn't it? I'm trying to paraphrase the story without going into a lot of detail. But anyway, what happened was those two individuals got out of prison one way, one you know, two different ways, but that's a long story. The fact is that at one point, Potiphar had a dream of his own, and he needed somebody to interpret it. And the, the servant said, wait, I knew a guy in prison who was interpreting dreams. He's really good. Why don't you call him in to do this? And Potiphar jumped on it. Joseph went, interpreted his dream for him, and as a result, Potiphar promoted him to the highest level in all of the kingdom right beneath himself. He had all the power and the authority of one of his own children. And Joseph now was in a position to where his dream could be fulfilled. But understand that his dream included a lot of suffering and pain to get him to where he was. His dream was eventually fulfilled. And I want you to hear this. In Genesis 45, verses 5 through 7, Joseph spoke these words to his family when they showed up during the famine. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph made it very clear to his family that this famine even was part of God's sovereign plan to get Israel and his children out of Israel and down to Egypt where they can be developed into a mighty nation. This was God's plan. Joseph instigated that plan with his own life. 
But here's the key words. God did this because it was to save lives, redemption. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant, redemption, and to save your lives by a great deliverance, redemption. Everything that Joseph endured, all the suffering and all the pain that he went through was done so in order to save lives and for God to redeem thousands upon thousands upon thousands. That is why he suffered. Now, if you don't have the ability, if Joseph did not have the ability to look beyond the incidents, to look beyond his own suffering and pain, he never would have seen the dream come to reality. But he had to trust God through the suffering so that he could see this come to fruition. And I believe the same is true in each of our situations, that you you set your mind on God before the suffering so that when you get in the midst of the tragedy, you can trust him and keep trusting him because you know this is going to end up in a good situation because God promised it. And, and, and it may look really ugly for you. It may really be painful for you, but you always have to remember, this isn't about me. It's about God's kingdom. It's about the redemption of thousands of people. And yes, your suffering has the ability to save thousands of lives, depending on what that suffering looks like. You have the ability to use that for God's good to save thousands of people. Redemption will come through you if you want it to, if you look for it, and if you trust God for it. In Genesis chapter 50, this is after all the, all the children have come back to, to Egypt, and now Joseph is in a position, he's already revealed himself, and now he's in a position to save his family. And he makes this decree in chapter 50, verses 20 and 21. You intended to harm me. When you sold me into slavery, when you threw me in the pit, when you gave my father the bloodied robe, you, you intended to harm me. You intended my destruction. And I ended up in Egypt where I spent over two years in prison. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives, redemption. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. It was all about redemption. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's possible that you might think to yourself, well, that's just one perspective. Joseph, in hindsight, was looking backwards. And his his perspective was, is that, wow, God has... Turn this all around for me. This is all my perspective. This is my victory. This is my shining moment. But I want you to read what King David wrote in Psalm one chapter 105. Because this is more than just one perspective. In, in uh, Psalm 105, beginning with verse 12, King David wrote this in regards to Joseph. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it. They wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake, he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. He called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. 
and he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all that he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased and teach his elders wisdom. Even, Joe, even King David, which happens you know, several, several years later, I think 100 years later, 110 years, somewhere like that, uh, David looked back at the story of Joseph and he saw evidence that God had a plan for him and that God used Joseph to bring about the redemption of the people of Israel at a time when they were just one little family of 12 kids. God had a plan this whole time. Page 2. I also want you to look at this passage in in, um, Joshua chapter 2. This is just to prove the point. Is it possible? Because I know when you go through some, some crud, when you lose somebody, when you are broken and wounded, it is very hard to think there's any sense in what you've been through. It just isn't going to make any sense, and you're going to be frustrated, and you may even turn your back on God for a period of time. Joseph didn't do that. He kept trusting. But in chapter 2 of Joshua, it says, starting with verse 2, this is when uh, Joshua sent the spies into Jericho to see if they could be conquered because now's the time for them to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land and to take possession of it. And so they sent spies into Jericho and they they found uh, this uh, prostitute by the name of Rahab who lived there. The king of Jericho was uh, was told, look, there's some of the Israelites have come here t- tonight to spy out the land. And so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring the men to me if they enter your home, because they have come to spy out this whole land. Now we skip down to verse 8, and this is her conversation with the spies, who she decided to put up in her home, and she put them up in the very top of her home and covered them with, with palm branches. In verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sahon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, she said, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. So so here's the crazy thing. In, In the midst of Joseph's suffering, he endured because of the dream that he had and because of the trust he had in a sovereign God. He didn't know what the full result was going to be. His vision was only about his his own family bowing down to him, which came to fruition. But he had no idea that his suffering had a bigger cause, a a bigger plan. And through that, thousands of Jews came to to be developed into a mighty nation, and now they're getting ready to inhabit the promised land. And this one prostitute, Rahab, says, I've heard about your God and how he redeemed you and your people. 
You see, here's the other part of this whole plan is that your suffering, in the midst of your suffering, this is the development of your testimony of how good God is or in your interpretation, maybe how bad God is. But when you go through a very, a very painful event, you have the option of using it for God's good or using it for God's demise. It's up to you, free will, right? But if you will use it, and, 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 and learn to analyze that event in, re, in light of the fact of God's goodness and his redemption, then maybe thousands of people could be saved. Your testimony is critical at this point. Your testimony is critical. If you never recover from the crisis that you went through, your testimony will be nothing. It will not shake the gates of heaven. But if your testimony can shed a little bit of light in the midst of somebody's darkness, then you may have just made strides that would set a person free from the captivity of themselves that they're in. You have that ability. I can't, what, what I did this week is I listened to a lot of videos from different pastors and different Christian speakers about their view on pain and suffering. And I came across this one by Pastor John Bevere. He said, God's first priority in this life is not your human comfort. His first priority is human redemption. He's not concerned about your comfort. He's concerned about human redemption. Johnny Erickson Tata, who, was, who became a quadriplegic and as a teenager when she dove into shallow water and broke her neck, she says this, God permits what he hates in order to allow what he loves. He hates brokenness. He hates disease. He hates, uh, he hates suffering. He hates pain. He is very much against it, but he allows it so that at the right moment, he can allow what he loves to shine through. And Job wrote this in Job 19.25, I know my Redeemer lives. Remember, Job was afflicted by the devil because God gave the devil permission to afflict him, and he lost everything, and he suffered more than any human would ever have to, be, have to suffer probably. And at the end of that, he says this, I know my Redeemer lives. Now, if you think about the concept of redemption and the fact that God is our redeemer, we have to come to grips with what really that means. That means that, that God redeems us, that he purchases us at a price. Now, when I was doing baseball cards, a baseball card, football card, basketball card, whatever, is worth more money when the person's face on that card is playing at a very high level and performing in incredible ways, right? I mean, Michael Jordan cards, I had some that were worth lots of money because he was like a god on the basketball court, right? Little G, not big G. <laughs> but uh, if you were to, to have a baseball card of a guy by the name of Sam Wheaton, who played for the Cleveland Indians in the early 70s, you might be able to get a penny out of it. Because he wasn't a performer. He wasn't a top-tier player. So whenever I buy baseball cards, I don't buy the no-name people. 
I buy them for two reasons. Either they wear a Vikings jersey or a Cardinals jersey, or it's somebody who is worth a lot of money, right? Those are the ones I target. Those are the ones most people, most collectors target, unless there's a personal value in it. God doesn't redeem you when you're at the top of your game and where you're worth more than anybody else in the church. That's not when he purchases you with the blood of his son, Jesus. He purchases you when you are a broken pile of camel dung. When nobody in the world wants you, when nobody wants to help you, when nobody would give you a nickel for a, for a phone call or give you a ride across the street, you know, so you could use a restroom. That's when God comes in, when the world completely rejects you, and then he picks you up and he purchases you with the price of his son's blood. That is redemption. So if you're never broken, if you're never a pile of dung, then God may just pass on by because you will not have the need for a savior or the need to be redeemed in your own mind, that is. But isn't it ironic that it's the very world who makes you a crumbled, broken pile of dung? The world is the one that destroys you. In John 10.10, 10, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He steals your joy. He steals your, your happiness. He steals your family from you. He steals your money from you, your house, your job, your friends. He steals everything, and he beats you up, and he kicks you, and he makes you bleed, and he makes you suffer, and then he leaves you there all by yourself to just cry in your own pity and misery. At that point in your life, that's not where you quit. That's the point where you look for a Savior to redeem you. And Jesus always redeems that which is broken. That's why it's so important to remind yourself, I know my Redeemer lives. I know it. Now, in closing, I just want to gloss over this real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I've done whole sermons on this before, but I just want to gloss over this just as a reminder because this is something I don't think any of us should ever forget. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It begins by saying this, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We talk a lot about ministry. I believe that every one of us could have a personal ministry. By ministry, it's basically you administering to the pain and the suffering of others. You could have a ministry to women. You could have a, a ministry to women who've had abortions. You could have a ministry of, of teenagers who have been sexually abused. You could have a ministry to men who uh, are, are widows, are widowers. And you, the sky's the limit, but we all have a ministry. And it says here, that this ministry that we have is by God's mercy. This ministry is by God's mercy. In other words, you don't deserve it. This is nothing intended for you, for your benefit, your gain, but this is by God's mercy that you have this ministry. The question is, what is my ministry? He explains your ministry is to let the light of Christ shine through your brokenness. 
He says it right down here in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In your brokenness, he takes the light of Jesus Christ and he puts it inside of your heart. And you're like, okay, great. That's a waste because I'm ridiculous. I'm, I'm nothing. I'm disgusting. I'm broken. I'm shattered. I'm, I'm, I'm dung, right? Why would God invest the light of Jesus Christ in me? And then he goes on in verse seven to explain. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are jars of clay, and we are broken. But you know, one of the things I've learned is, is if you take a light bulb and you put it inside of a vase that is completely perfect, that no flaws, no brokenness, let's even put a lid on top of it, you know, to keep the contents, the treasure maintained and contained in that jar. If the vase is perfect, the light will never shine through. So why in the world would God put the light of Christ in a perfect vase? If he knew the light of Christ would never shine through the brokenness, giving hope to those who are suffering. The only the only way to make sense of this is that God needs broken vessels who are disgusting who are chipped and unattractive, who have made mistake after mistake after mistake. And then God puts the light of Christ inside of you. And now through those cracks and crevices, the glory of Christ shall be revealed to anyone, regardless of where they come from and what shame and guilt they're carrying. So it makes sense that he would redeem you while you're broken because that's when he can do his best good in you, but also through you. Because remember, your suffering is not about you. It's about those on the outside who have no hope. It's a treasure that he has put inside of you. He's invested inside of you. And he tells you one instruction, go and let the light of Christ shine through you. This is your ministry. And so basically... That's why I think God allows pain and suffering. Now, I want to share with you one other quote. This one's hard. I sent a note to Carrie yesterday. I said, Carrie, you've been through a whole lot of suffering since July. Her little three-year-old girl, Annalise, who used to run around this building uh, laughing and carrying on being ornery, and, and you, know, just, you remember Annalise probably. Annalise got one of those diseases. There's, I think they had eight cases in central Illinois, which was like polio. It cripples the child, and she lost all ability to walk. She lost all ability to use her leg. And so since August, I mean, since July, she has been hospital, 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 and rehab, rehab, rehab. It's cost them thousands of dollars, and it has been very devastating. Uh, Carrie told me earlier in the week that Annalise, for the first time, had a voluntary movement in her right leg. Right, Just one little voluntary movement, that's a breakthrough. And so I sent her a note, and I said, Carrie, I'm doing this message tomorrow. What could you say, just a couple sentences, about redemption or about pain and suffering? And she wrote this. The purpose that she believes that they are going through is to draw us closer to him, 
to reveal more about his character and overwhelming love. I have never felt closer to or more loved by God than during this journey. Every answered prayer, every act of provision, every extra measure of renewal, of renewed physical strength is an opportunity to remember the grace and love of God. He cares, he responds, he hears, and that is felt deeply in the valleys. And then she attached the song, Hills and Valleys by Torrin Wells. Great song, right? That's it in the, in the foremost. Carrie understands that this is not about her or her daughter, Annalise. This is about the bigger picture. And uh, as a result, the light of Christ is going to shine through both of them in their testimonies, and it's going to give hope to broken people. And this is becoming her ministry. To that, I think we ought to pray. Holy Father, we humbly come before you because there's no other way by which we can come. And we pray, Lord, that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our confusion, our weak faith, in the midst of our ugliness, we pray that you will redeem us, that you will see some value in us. We know that you've already paid the price, but for whatever reason, perhaps we've been resisting you. Father, help us to look beyond our pain and beyond our suffering and to ask the question, Lord, how can we use this to glorify your name? Because you are truly the great redeemer. We love you, Father, and we need you. Please be patient with us, but continue to heal us so that we can serve you in a way that honors you. In Jesus we pray, amen. We're going to stand and sing our closing, and if you like prayer, I'd be more than happy to pray for you.
that's a cool song. I guess you all have heard that one before. I think it might stick around for a while. That's a pretty good one. Anyway, let's pray, okay? Father, as we go our separate ways, we pray that your spirit will continue this work of redemption in each of us, and not just for our own sake, but for the sake of many others who are yet to be afflicted. But Lord, may they find hope in our brokenness, and may we find joy in letting the light of Christ shine through us. All for your kingdom's sake, we pray these things. Amen. You all stay out of trouble.